Thanks, Trace. Well, friends, welcome. My name is Michael Hands. I'm the pastor here at New Life, and uh, I'm not the pastor, one of the pastors here at New Life. And we have many pastors. They're great. They're all really good people. I'm going to keep moving. It's so good to have you with us today. How beautiful has the weather been this weekend? It's been amazing. I'm just saying that to you to let you know that I went for my first swim of uh, spring. I know it's not spring yet, but I went on Friday because I chose to Sabbath well. I hope you've all had a Sabbath this weekend and rested because Sabbath has been an important thing we've been learning about in this series on work. To the question, does what you do with your life matter? Our church joins in with the history of Christianity and says, yes, it does. That your work is not peripheral to the ministry of God, but central. And that is what the heart behind this series is. It is your first time here today. Thank you so much for joining us. If it's your hundredth time here today, thank you for still being with us. That second one was weird, hey. Anyway, would you join me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much that we can be here today. I thank you that we can gather around your word, whether we are in St. George online, whether we're joining from New South Wales or Melbourne, whether we are here in the room, I pray that we would hear your voice. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. And more than anything, we need to hear you, Lord God. Jesus, let us know your grace and your goodness. Holy Spirit, still our hearts that we might hear you. Shape us and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may know that before I was a pastor, I was actually a teacher. I loved teaching. I was a teacher of uh, modern history and ancient history and English. I studied at University of Queensland and I taught for two years before being called out of that into my current job. In fact, if I wasn't a pastor, I would still be a teacher. To all those who say those who can't do teach, I tell you, you are wrong. I can do things, but I love teaching. And if you're an educator in the room today, you are blessed and have a mighty calling on your life. But I was a young teacher. And when you're a young teacher, you have this kind of thought that enters your mind when you're in university. You think, uh, maybe foolishly, or at least I did naively, that the reason why kids are so disinterested in school is because they just haven't had you as a teacher yet. Now, that was foolish of me. And if you're wondering why there is an ocean on the screen behind me, I too would be wondering that. There should be a classroom behind me, but we'll move right along. I'm pretty sure I clicked something on my, on my clicker. There was a, <laughs> be like, this doesn't line up with anything he's saying. Anyway, you think you're the savior of education in the world. You think that you are going to bring this fresh message of education and that all kids will need is for you to walk into the classroom. So when you walk into the first class, you are filled with high expectation that kids are going to love you. They're going to think you're awesome. They're going to think things are going really well. And I remember one particular class. I, I, I was a history teacher, so I developed a lesson on uh, the rise and fall of ancient Roman emperors. And I was so excited. I believed to the core of my being, the reason why people hate history is because they didn't have me as their teacher. And so I kind of I created a lesson. It was engaging in activities. It was beautiful, friends. It was a work of art. It was my Sistine Chapel of the education industry. And there was a moment 
where I remember getting to the end of the lesson and I could see the glimmer of life in their eyes as they saw me as the harbinger of knowledge and the gateway to all information. And one young boy put his hand up at the end of my lesson. I thought, here he is to tell me his testimony of how I have changed his life and perspective. And as he put up his hand, I said, Jimmy, what's your question, buddy? He said, Mr. Hand, is any of this going to be on the exam? (laughs) And in a moment, his comment pricked my inflated ego and deflated me, discouraged me and disparaged me. And I realized none of them could see what I saw. None of them was interested in what I was doing. In fact, they had a certain lens they were looking at things through. You see, behind his statement was a question. And the question is this, why does this matter? Now, if you've been in education, if you're a teacher, you know what I'm saying. If you've been in school, you've asked this question in Romeo and Juliet classes or something like that. But the reason why I raise this is because I believe this isn't just a question of adolescence in education. It's a question of humanity. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Does this matter? And I actually want to challenge today that for some of us in our Christian walk, this is the question we ask of our faith. Why does this matter? Why am I going to church, reading my Bible, praying? Why am I trying to live out a work that was redeeming the world and restoring Christianity? Like, why am I here? And some of us, not all, but some fall into the trap of seeing the Christian faith much like a year nine history exam. What do I need to do to pass the test? Like, just tell me, how do I get out of hell and forget my sin? And the problem with this is, it's a terrible motivation for following Christ. In fact, I believe it's such a weak why, you'll be discouraged, deflated. And friends, maybe right now you know no longer filled with the same passion you once did. So here's the question I want to ask you. Why are you here? Why are you here? When you're a mother, father, lawyer, doctor, farmer, educator, student, brother, sister, why do you do what you do? What propels you out of bed in the morning? What is your why? Because friends, I believe we've gathered today to scatter tomorrow that we might bless the world and glorify God, that there is a purpose to your existence beyond earning an income and achieving a promotion. But if we aren't crystal clear on our why, I'm concerned that we'll lose our hope, our energy, and our desire to follow Jesus. So today, I believe that in a letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 20, Paul gives the Corinthians three things that only the gospel can give. He says to them that in the gospel, we have a gospel why behind our what, we have a gospel identity, and we have a gospel purpose. If it's your first time in church today, either online or in the room, I've got to let you know this. God has a purpose, and He has a reason for your creation and for your living. There is a reason for you to wake up tomorrow, friends, because there is a message the world needs to hear. And so I want to welcome you into this passage as we study the why of the gospel, the identity of the gospel, and the purpose that the gospel gives us. And this is why it's important. 
Because in the first letter to the Corinthians, for those of you who aren't aware, Paul wrote about three quarters of the New Testament in the Bible. And uh, one of his letters, the, the 1 Corinthians, was written to the church in Corinth. And it's a pretty scathing letter. Like if you've ever read Corinthians, you'll know, number one, the church in Corinth were doing some pretty messed up stuff. And number two, Paul was calling them out for it. He was saying, stop that. That's weird. and definitely isn't about following Jesus, most importantly of all. But secondly, after he wrote them the letter, after this first letter to the Corinthian church, the Corinthians were like, we don't like Paul. Paul tells us what to do. We kind of hope he never comes back here ever again, which is how most of us respond to correction and advice, right? And there's this moment where Paul writes a second letter. Because you see, in the first letter, Paul says stuff like this. He says, whatever you do, whether you are eating or drinking or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then Jimmy in the Corinthian classroom, is putting up his hand and going, why does that matter? Have you ever heard someone say to you, hey, you live for the glory of God? And maybe in your heart of hearts, like, how would you like, oh, yes, amen, brother and sister. But like, in your heart of hearts, you're like, why? That was the response of the Corinthian church. So Paul returns to them and he says, let me give you a why. Let me tell you why we live for something better than ourselves. And friends, that's what I hope God does with us today. God sculpts us and shapes us to know his why. You see, ultimately, the why that Paul gives to the Corinthian church is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 14. He says this, For Christ's love compels. Everyone say compels. If you're online, type compels. Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What is Paul saying and writing here? He's saying at the beginning, we have to start with the why. You see, back a couple of years ago, a man named Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. And this came out of a moment when he was really good at his job. He knew how to do the what. He knew how to do the how, but he lost his why. And what we see happen in this book is Simon Sinek came out and said, you can have an understanding of what you do, even how you do it. But if you don't know why, it leads to burnout and failure. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what that's like with the Christian faith. And this is so important because Paul here says, let me tell you why we live for the glory of God. Why we hop out of bed in the morning. Chris, I don't think my clicker's working, man, so you're going to work with me today. That would be beautiful. My brother-in-law's on projection. Now, we're going to go to the, the Bible verse after gospel. Why? What does Paul say? He says this, For Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us. Just for a moment, let me pause with that. What compels you? Now, you might be like, well, this is a really nice statement. Let me tell you who was writing this. Paul, a man who was beaten for his faith, who traveled around the Middle East sharing the gospel and preaching and was persecuted for it, who couldn't afford to just live on preaching, so he made tents as a living. He ended up being beheaded, they think, by the Roman emperor for living for the gospel. What compelled Paul it's the love of God. What compels you, friends? What compels you to hop out of bed in the morning, to roll out and live your life? Why should we do anything for the love of God? Because the, the love of Christ compels us. This was his why. 
See, what the Corinthian church did is they looked at Paul and they're like, dude, you are, you're full on. Why are you so weird? What's going on with you, Paul? And, and Eugene Peterson rephrases this like this. He says this, if I've acted crazy, Paul writes, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Eugene Peterson rewrites God's words like this. If we go back to that slide, that'd be great. We've, we've lost that. Well, you were right there. You were right at the, if I acted great, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything that we do. Friends, here's my question for you. What has the first and last word of every motivation? What compels you today? Money? Fame? Success? Stability? Hoping that when you retire, you'll be comfortable? Paul's central driving why was the love of Christ. Now, we sing of the love of Christ. We talk of the love of Christ. We tell each other, God loves you. But it becomes just like a warm blanket. We wrap ourselves in late at night to feel warm and fuzzy, but don't recognize the revolutionary truth. You see, friends, I believe this, that one of the greatest risks in the world today is a Christianity that is growing cold to the radical love of God. Our world is plagued by Christians' faith who are apathetic to the unconditional, unfailing, never-ending and eternal, scandalous love of God. It is so compelling, it changes everything. And you might be like, well, Michael, how do we know Christ loves us? If we go back to that verse, there's this sense where Paul says that this, this is how you know Christ loves us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. Why do we know Christ loves us? Because, friends, we have a cross that is empty and a tomb that is empty that reminds us that in history, God stepped off his throne. He became a man. And in our place, he died a death we should have died after living a life we could not live. All for this purpose, that you might know you are loved. And I don't know if you know this today, if you've forgotten it, but there is nothing you can do to get God to love you more and nothing you've done to, for God to love you less. Right now, the scandalous, gracious, unconditional love of God is yours. And Paul is saying, when you see the cross and know its worth and value, you can do nothing else but be compelled. What compels you today, what throws you out of your bed in the morning? Paul argues it's the scandalous love of God. And I want to ask you this question. Has the love of God grown cold for you? Because it still burns hot for him. This was his why. Do we not see it in John 3.16? Why did God send the Son? John 3.16 is the greatest why of all time. For God so hated the world. For God was so angry with humanity. For God was a God of justice and wrath. No, no, no. For God loved the world. He sent his one and only son. So whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is the why of God. This is what moves his hand into action. And so too should it be what compels us. So when was the last time? Friends, everyone in this room, and everyone online, when was the last time you meditated on the depth of God's love for you? Could the answer be 
Not necessarily more scripture or more prayer, but learning to abide deeper in his love. Because this changes everything. Paul goes on and he says this. You see, when you realize how much God loves you, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Those who are compelled by the love of God enter the workplace with a completely different motivation. They're not there to build their kingdom. They're not there to live for themselves. They're not there for their money or their bank account. They're there for a different kingdom and a greater king. Can you imagine what it must be like to have a CEO who follows Jesus, who's in a boardroom and sits there, not for his glory, but in one ear listening to the board and the other attentive to the Holy Spirit. Father, what does it mean for me to serve you in this moment? What would our workplaces be like if that was the mantra of the Christian? This is our why, friends. It shifts so much for us, and I believe God still calls it to shift us because when we understand the love of God, it doesn't just change how we see God sees us. You know what else it changes? How we view others. In verse 16 in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does this mean? This means that you change how we look at other people. Why? Because when you understand that Christ died for all, you realize Christ didn't just die for you. Christ died for that co-worker that breathes a little loudly whilst they eat their sandwich. (laughs) I was reminded of this by my father, who uh, told me a story when I was young of a man named Mad Dog Pete. My dad studied to be a scientist. Once he got his bachelor, he was like, you know what? I feel like going and and, uh, becoming a carpenter instead, as you do. So dad went and became a carpenter, but he was also a Christian. And being a Christian in the 1970s was a little bit uh, different uh, in the tradie field. He would often read his Bible on smoko uh, breaks. You can imagine this young carpenter reading uh, his Bible in the middle of a blue-collar working environment wasn't necessarily the most popular thing. You know, he would be called Lank Dog, and someone would come along and be like, oh, you're reading your Bible again, Anzi? How's it going? What's God saying to you today? And Mad Dog Pete was the worst worst proponent of this. Mad Dog Pete was this laborer who was called Mad Dog Pete because of his eyes. You see, Mad Dog Pete had one eye that looked at you and the other eye that could freely roam around the room looking at everybody else. And everybody knew that Mad Dog could be nail gutting the wall whilst throwing a, you know, a, 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 a chisel at your head all at the same time. And Mad Dog was horrible to my father. Now, our dad is this Christian young laborer. And one day, it's 40 degrees on the work site. And, and it's hot. And dad's brought like a bunch of water to work, five liters. And Mad Dog Pete's already gone through his whole water reserve. So, you know, it's tiring and it's clear that everyone's thirsty. Dad goes over to pick up the bottle of water and have a drink. And this small, quiet voice, the spirit whispers to him, says, give Mad Dog a drink. <laughs> I'm not giving Mad Dog a drink. Do you know what he said about God at Smoko? Stuff that. Keeps drinking. Give Mad Dog a drink. Do you know who Mad Dog is? Like, number one, he could... Punch me. Number two, he doesn't even love God. Like, why? And still the small, quiet voice came along, give Mag Dog a drink. My dad walks over to Pete. says, hey, Pete, you want a you drink? Pete's first response, why? What have you put in it? Like, nah, nothing. I promise you. Yeah, you haven't spit, spit in it? I promise you. It's, it's fine. Do you want a drink? Mag Dog looks for a while, and he reaches in his thirst for the drink of water. With one eye on the water as he drank, and the other one on my dad, he drank the water. And he held it down, he handed it back, he said, thanks, Hansie. 
and things changed. Now, I'm not sure if Mad Dog's a Christian today, but I know from Dad's account that things shifted on the work site. Because in that moment, God didn't just die for Mark Hands, he died for Pete as well. This is a scandalous truth that we don't live out. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is a reminder that his grace isn't just for you. It's for that co-worker whose email drips with passive aggression. It's for that boss who seems to ride you so hard that you're like, you're just, you're tired. Christ died for them. It's for that child in class who's apathetic and complains more than compliments and never wants to comply. Christ died for them. And when we realize this, we recognize why it's so important that God's love compels us into the world. Because without God's love, it's almost impossible for us to be his missionaries in a world who needs to know his grace. He died not only for those who are nice, but also for those who disagree with us. And here's the truth. Some of you today have made enemies of people this week. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because someone doesn't agree with you about COVID-19 and the vaccine. And so they're now your enemy. Maybe it's because something else happened in your world and they offended you. So you now have an enemy. And here's the beautiful thing when we have enemies in our world. The Bible is really clear about how we handle enemies. We pray for them and we love them. So here's my encouragement. Make everybody your enemy. It would be better for the world for you to go, you're my enemy. So you start praying for them and loving them rather than thinking that the answer is to remain in your, in your pride and selfishness because the best place for someone to be in position against a Christian is their enemy because, boy, God's very clear how we treat those who disagree with us or who we do not like. Why is this? Because the gospel changes our why, but it also, friends, changes our identity. See, Paul goes on and he says this, If anyone is in Christ and a new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. How can we give Mad Pete a drink? It's because we no longer look at other people the way we used to. We've upgraded our operating system. In fact, we haven't only upgraded it, we've changed it completely. We've gone from Windows and Android and changed over to Apple. And this is someone came up and they're like, you realize that that like Android's way better. We're praying for you, friends. <laughs> See, it's not just getting the latest version of the Android phone. It's changing your operating system altogether. I'm aware that Apple is not a Christian product. Please do not buy it because I said it on the platform. We do not endorse that product in this church. But moving right along, that's what happens to the Christian. You don't just become better. You become new. You no longer operate from your old worldview. You have a new one which says everyone is loved by God. Everyone deserves the grace of God. And I get it, so so do they. When we have an identity, not only does it change how we view others, but it changes how we view ourselves. And we can rest in the safe and secure love of God, which says you no longer have to earn your approval or your worth. When you know that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, here's what it says. It says that every one of you who follows Jesus can say this boldly. I am the beloved son and daughter of God. That's who I am. And no job review, email, or paycheck will change that. Why is this a beautiful thing? Because you're now free to live and work from a place of security. Not fear. See, in the world, 
our identity is defined by our performance. But in the kingdom of God, our performance is defined by our identity. When you know you're the beloved son or daughter of God, you're not going in there tomorrow to please, impress, or prove yourself. Because the maker of heaven and earth calls you his. It shifts the whole idea. We now live from a new center as new creations. We no longer partner, perform for the love of God. We work from the love of God. So here's, here's what I'd ask you this morning. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know and are you operating from a new identity? Because if not, things need to change today. Because not only does God give us a great why through the gospel, not only does God give us a better identity in the gospel, but here's the thing, God gives us a greater purpose in the gospel. And when I was praying this week about this weekend, I had a burden on my heart for our church. And the burden comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, but I couldn't get to 20 without 14. And I know some of you are like, it's, man, we, are we only just starting? No, we're finishing the sermon. But I rounded off with, with this idea that in, in verse 18 to 20, Paul commissions that all who follow Christ now have a new purpose. All this is from God, says Paul. All this love, all this hope, all this, all this idea of a better future, this is all from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What does this mean? What is the message of reconciliation? Why do people need to be reconciled? Because often people need reconciliation because someone is in deficit with wrong and that wrong has to be made up for the relationship to return to where it should be. What the message of Jesus Christ says this, friends, if you come and ask Christ for forgiveness, you no longer have guilt before God, condemnation before God. You are reconciled to God, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. This is the message of reconciliation. God's heart is to reconcile you to himself. But then here's the best thing. Here's what he does. He says, this message isn't just for you. I want to give you this message because the world needs to know my heart for reconciliation. And so he gives us a name in verse 20. Paul says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Everyone say ambassadors. I was weak. Everyone say ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, for those of you who don't know, what an ambassador is, it's probably because you haven't watched the greatest TV show of all time, The West Wing. Can I get an amen from one person? No one said amen. That's fine. But The West Wing is beautiful. But what it taught me a lot was the role of an ambassador. In The West Wing, you have the President of the United States. And at different times, an ambassador would come into his office. And if the ambassador for Germany is in the President's office, he's not there thinking, you know, well, you probably need to talk to my boss. The ambassador for Germany is there as the decision-making power and representative of the country he's been sent from. He is the face and the physical representation of Germany in the office of the president. Do you understand the weight behind what God is saying when he says, you are my ambassador? 
if you don't understand the power of ambassadors, we just sent a team of ambassadors to Tokyo in the Olympics. In fact, I was struck by the power of ambassadors when I heard the story of these two guys, Cedric Dubly and Ash Malone. Now, Maloney. Now, if you, if you haven't heard this story, uh, it's a beautiful one. These guys competed in the decathlon which is a long event of 10 different um, events that kind of mount up to a final score. Now, on the way into the final race, Maloney was heading for the first time in Australian history to receive the bronze medal for the decathlon in the Olympics. It was an amazing moment. But Dublia had a bad thing happen to him. He tore his hamstring. And he knew that he was now no longer going to be able to compete in the final race as fast as he was hoping. But he also knew that his mate had a chance to do something for the first time. And so these people, these two guys who, who carried the green and gold, who represented us physically in the decathlon. I love the Olympics because it's a moment that I can celebrate someone else's achievement as my own without having to do any of the work, right? And that's what happens. The decathlon, so what happens is Maloney's running around in the 1,500 meters, and then out of nowhere comes Dublo, who starts running beside him, not, in, not competing in the race, but sacrificing his race to do nothing but stand beside his mate and yell encouragement at him. Come on! You could do it. You could finish. Come on, a bit faster. I'll set the pace for you. Dubla lays down his race and starts to encourage his friend. And the whole nation of Australia looked at this moment like, that's what it means to be Aussie. That's us. And, and Maloney finishes and got third in the bronze medal. But everyone didn't just celebrate Maloney. They also celebrate Cedric. Why? Because he was a faithful ambassador. Imagine if he'd run out there and tripped Maloney over and been like sucked in. That's how we roll. We'd be like, that's not Australian. No, no, no. We looked at it. We were proud because he was a faithful ambassador of what it means to be Aussie, right? In the same way, we are Christ's ambassadors to the world. How does, the, how does anyone competing in the Olympics know what Australia is like? They look at our Olympians. How does anyone in the world know what Christ is like? They look at you. You, friends, are God's physical representations in every room you walk into. God is not trying to hide himself from the world, but he is trying to make himself known through you. This is why he says this, that God is making his appeal through us, through us. What a powerful picture of our purpose. The world is looking at you, friends. And here's the question I want to ask. What are you an ambassador for? I've been gripped this week by the desperation of our world. We see an earthquake in Haiti, a crisis in Afghanistan, which, to be honest, friends, None of us really know what's going on there. The media seems to be saying so many different things. We can feel lost and confused. In a world where we're like, who's right about COVID? What's going on with lockdowns? And, and you know, my friend's saying this and this person's saying this. And, and we can get so confused. And what I've noticed, and I might be wrong, maybe it's just me, but particularly on my newsfeed, is I've seen more Christians be an ambassador for fear than anything. And Christians don't peddle in fear. I want to be clear. Encouraging anything but the fear of God 
is sin. Because God doesn't want us to be afraid in a world where he is present. And when we post, when we comment, when we share things that increase fear, we are doing the enemy's job for him. And here's here's what I want to offer you. The world doesn't need your opinion as much as it needs the hope of Christ. The world doesn't need to know which conspiracy theory we've signed up to as much as it needs to know the greatest conspiracy of all time, that nothing will stop the kingdom of God. Friends, God is not surprised or shocked. He is weaving things together and doesn't need our opinion. He needs to know that we are representing a kingdom of faith, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of grace, and a kingdom of hope. And I just want to encourage us today, what are you being an ambassador for? Right now. When your work colleagues wonder, how do we process Afghanistan? And they wonder what God's doing. What do we do? When the workplace descends into fear about conspiracies and talks of government overreach and tyrannical rule, what do we do? What do we say? And how do our words point to a greater reality of a coming king who subverted the Roman Empire through love and grace and selflessness. What are you an ambassador for today, friends? Because your colleagues are watching. Your children are watching. And we are the physical representation of Christ. We have been commissioned to join God in his ministry. As we have been reconciled, God says, go and tell the world, I want them reconciled as well. Because God doesn't just work in us, he works through us. The love of God compels us. The identity of God affirms us. And the purpose of God inspires us, friends. And you might be sitting here today, and maybe you are afraid. Can I say, that's okay. The Bible doesn't say, you know, it's a sin to be afraid. What I think the problem is, is when we allow our language to feed fear. I'm someone who struggles with anxiety. It's not the issue of anxiety. It's what I do with that anxiety and where I take with it, what I run, where I point the world, my attention is drawn towards Jesus. That is the point of what Christ is saying here about being an ambassador. So friends, may we be an ambassador for faith, not fear, for hope, not despair, for love, not anger, for peace, not violence. So what do we do right now? If you've heard about the why, you've heard about the identity, you've heard about the purpose, and you're just like, I'm just not there, Michael. I'm cold. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know Jesus and I don't have the hope that you have. Paul in his brilliance, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, finishes this text so well. He says this, so let me implore you. On Christ's behalf today, be reconciled to God. As God made him who made no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, you know what, everyday friends, right now, we suffer from gospel amnesia. I guarantee you, no matter how well Anna preached last week, we forgot it by Wednesday because the world distracts us. So right now, today, God says, again, be reconciled to me. Be reconciled to me. Look at the cross. Be reminded that it was for you. 
Look at the empty tomb. Remind that that promise is yours. And know my love. Know my love. Because we, friends, are the physical representation of a king and a greater kingdom. And if you struggle with that, then what we're going to do for the moment, in a moment, is we're going to pray. And we're going to create time at the end of this service to just pray for one another. Because there are some of you here today that aren't okay. And I just want to let you know, if there's any place you can not be okay, it's church. A couple of weeks ago, I felt the weight of this moment in our world. I just felt despair. I was like, God, I, just, I don't know how to do this. What are we doing? We're in lockdowns. We're in, you know, I don't know who to believe half the time. God, where, where are you in this? And I just remember God centering me one early morning in my chairs. I spent time with him. He said, Michael, you forgot your why. You forgot your why. You allowed the world to steal it from you. And just the last couple weeks, I've been allowing God to minister to me again and reteach me again that my why is not performance. My why is not achievement. My why is to rest in the love of God that it might propel me into the world that others might know He loves them. More people, more like Jesus, friends. So we want to create a moment right now for those of you like me who need to be reminded of God's unfailing love for you and for the world. Would you stand to your feet? If you're a section leader, would you make your way down the front? You would, you would know this. Some of you have been emailed. And in a moment, we, we've asked our section leaders, thank you so much, guys. Feel free to come down boldly if you're a section leader. Um, we're actually going to open up and we're going to pray in a COVID-safe way. We're going to pray, but we're actually going to encourage, hey, maybe some of you here today are going, I need prayer. I need to know. I need, I'm not okay. And we were going to say, hey, well, why don't we come down and pray for you? That, we'd love that. But whilst these guys make their way down the front, if you sectionists can come and just face everyone, that'll be fine because that'll, that'll help people know where you are and who you are. I want to read a liturgy over you that reminds you of your why, reminds you of your identity, and reminds you of your purpose. And here's the reason. Because John Mark Comer every day, this, this leader we talk about a bit in the Christian world, every day he speaks this over his children as they go into the world. And today I want to speak it over us. This is the liturgy. Friends, you are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not what other people say about you. You are the beloved child of God. It is who you are. No one can take it from you. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to hurry. You can trust your friend Jesus and share his love with the world. May you be compelled today. In a moment, we're going to sing a song called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And here's my encouragement. If you're online, Calvin and the team right now will be telling you how we want to pray for you. We'd love to do that. If you're in the room and you know the love's cold, why would you leave without prayer? Why? Like, come and let us stand together and pray that His love would compel us again. In the first service, we had people crying down the front together. We just had people deep in ministry together. It was beautiful. We would love to step into that. So as I pray, even right now, here's what I want to ask. If that's you, why don't you be bold enough to come down and receive prayer from one of these section leaders? If you're wondering which one's trustworthy, they're all amazing. They're great. They're so, you know, there's not like a a special anointing over anyone here. These guys, we'd love to pray for you. So friends, when you're ready, why don't you come forward and receive prayer? Um, And in a moment, 
I'd love to just encourage us to join in worship. If you're not getting prayer, I'd love you to declare this song over others. That's right. Thank you so much. Have the courage to come whenever you see fit. And the rest of you, would you join with me as we pray before we sing? Gracious God, as we worship you today, I thank you that your love compels. I thank you that your identity affirms and that your purpose inspires us, Father. May we be reminded of your love. May we be redeemed to our purpose. But God, I pray, may we know the extravagant love of God today and choose to follow you into our world for your glory and the world's good. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.